Okay, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Oxford Mountain School. I'm the director, Ian Golden, for those who don't know me. Uh, we have a great seminar series um, this term, same time every Thursday. And um, like everything in the Oxford Mountain School, it's designed to be provocative, innovative, to provide fresh perspectives on some of the biggest challenges of the 21st century, uh, all interdisciplinary. And each week we'll have different perspectives on this much talked about question of is the planet full. Um, some of you might have picked up that it's said that there's going to be 7 billion people in the planet in October. So it's one of the reasons we decided this was a timely uh, term to, uh, to have this particular seminar series now. But of course, we might already be 7 billion people and it might only be in November, who knows. Uh, the, the presentations over this every Thursday, and do pick up the list outside, will cover multiple dimensions of this. So food, water, health, energy, demographics, uh, inequality and justice, uh, growth, and um, sort of the Gaia uh, dimensions to it. And with a really tremendous group of people, including um, uh, Charles Godfrey, uh, Sir Tony Atkinson, Paul Collier, and many others. So do come, encourage your um, friends and colleagues to come. We will open up the site, and there will be even more room uh, in here. Uh, in future. It's also being filmed, so uh, if you have an objection to your voice being on the film or your questions being on the film, uh, don't ask them or uh, <laughs> ask, <laughs> ask us to turn off the film uh, at that point if there's any particular reason. There's also a blog conversation which we encourage you to be part of and uh, for those of you that like being Twitters or Twits I suppose, um, Please do Twitter on this, and uh, our website you'll see slash uh, is the planet full. So we're delighted to be able to start with uh, Toby today, and uh, Toby's very connected to the Oxford Martin School. He's in our Future of Humanity group. He's a philosopher with degrees in philosophy and computer science from Oxford and Melbourne. Uh, he embraces interdisciplinarity in his background, uh, and he thinks big. Uh, and he thinks in ethical terms as well as philosophical terms. Uh, he's also a James Martin Fellow and member of our new group on the future uh, of technology. So he's an important person for us uh, reflecting on the big pictures. And what we hope um, that Toby will do is frame some of these questions in the way we may begin to think about uh, some of these questions of is the planet full. Uh, one dimension that is not in the seminar series is migration. Uh, and for those of you that want to know more about migration, I'm actually giving a talk at Blackboard's instead of talk tonight. So that's just a little personal pitch. Toby will speak for about um, 45 minutes, and then we'll have a conversation following that. Thanks, Toby. Thank you. When people think about overpopulation, and uh, when the public conversation gets going on overpopulation, there's generally a feeling, uh, you know, in the very framing of it, uh, that overpopulation, uh, that there's some kind of pessimism and fear that there are too many people and there are some big problems which will arise as the population increases and runs into some limits, uh, perhaps causing various forms of disaster. Uh, this was uh, prominently put uh, by Thomas Malthus quite a long time ago now, in 1798. And uh, some of you uh, will remember uh, the uh, 
recent uh, uproar in the uh, 1960s and 70s uh, when the world population growth rate was particularly high and uh, <laughs> the uh, book uh, The Population Bomb was published by Paul Ehrlich. And this has been where a lot of the debate has, uh, has lain with these problems about population. And I think that a lot of the framing of the debate has been flawed. And so what I'm going to try to do today is to present something of a more balanced view, uh, well, at least to provide some of the uh, view in the other direction to overall balance things out. Uh, perhaps I'll be a little bit unbalanced in favour of positives. Uh, but to try to get used to this idea that population is not just a negative, and I'll explain various ways in which it can be good to have a higher population. Uh, population can be, bring many benefits, and these benefits that it brings need to be weighed against the costs. Uh, so when we're thinking about uh, population in general, uh, we don't just need to think about overpopulation, but we should also think about uh, the potential of underpopulation. Uh, this idea that uh, there may indeed be an imperative to limit population, uh, but there might also be an imperative to increase population. So that's the, some of the basic framework I want to get you thinking about. Uh, and also uh, quite a few other points to do with laying a foundation for future discussions. So I'm not going to be talking so much about cutting edge information, empirical information about what's happening in the world today uh, with respect to various limits like uh, food and water. Uh, that's going to happen in the other seven seminars in this series. What I want to do though is to take this opportunity to, uh, to try to yeah, lay some of this groundwork and the foundations for thinking about these issues. Uh, so there's going to be plenty of time for questions at the end, so I look forward to them. So uh, the structure here is to first talk about the benefits of having a larger population then to talk about the costs of population, and then finally uh, to have a little look at how uh, this equation might change in the future. So firstly, uh, I want to talk about one of the big benefits, probably the biggest benefit uh, of increasing population, at least the biggest one that I know of. Uh, so there's something called the information economy, and people might be familiar with this, but I'll, I'll outline it and show you how it's really relevant. Uh, so if you take different types of things that we have, uh, different goods in society, uh, they can fall into these two different categories. Uh, on the, the first hand, we have things like hammers, uh, or the classical industrial good, uh, something that's made out of matter and uh, has various uh, laws governing the economics of it. And on the other side, you have things like songs, and I'll mention some other things, but various forms of ideas and information come on the other side. And there are some serious disanalogies between these, and they lead to very different economic effects. So hammers are made from matter, uh, from iron in a lot of cases. Uh, songs might be encoded somehow uh, in matter, but they're fundamentally just patterns of some sort. And you can have the same pattern realized in many different places. So uh, when I say songs here, there's a few things I could be talking about. Uh, I could be talking about uh, the lyrics uh, of a song. I could be talking about the sheet music for a song uh, or a particular recording of a particular performance of a song. Uh, I'm not talking, though, about a live performance because that's something which actually operates much more like a hammer uh, in the economy. Uh, and recorded music has started to operate. Uh, you know, it's allowed us to have performances operating as information, uh, whereas previously all performances had to be done uh, in, the, in the way on the left-hand side here. Uh, but So let's think about a recording of music, so uh, a particular track on a CD or an MP3. So with the hammer, uh, each one must be laboriously made. It's possible to streamline this somewhat by setting up a factory in order to make your hammers, uh, but still 
each hammer um, has quite large costs of production. In contrast, with something like a song, uh, the first one uh, must be laboriously made. So when you work out the lyrics to the song and the music, uh, or perhaps when you do the original performance of the song. Uh, however, after that, once you've record recorded it, you can uh, copy this very cheaply and distribute it uh, uh, incredibly cheaply. Uh, so there's a real discrepancy here, which is that the hammers, each extra hammer still costs a certain amount of materials that have to be mined out of the ground and so forth. Uh, whereas with the songs, you can just uh, download them to your computer and change some of the bits on your hard drive uh, to represent the song. Uh, and this list leads to a really big difference. So for hammers, uh, when you produce a hammer, it benefits one person who desires it, uh, the person who buys it. Uh, whereas with a song, uh, they can potentially benefit all people who desire it. Uh, if you create a new song, it's just not that hard to give that song to a billion people, uh, whereas it's incredibly hard to give hammers to a billion people. So there's a very different uh, way that these things work. In particular, for hammers, the value of an individual hammer is pretty much independent of the population, uh, whereas the value of a, uh, a song uh, becomes more valuable with more people uh, because you have more people to share it. Uh, so if you think about a community, if, uh, if there was an isolated desert island community with only 10 people, if someone came up with a new song, uh, then only uh, the 10 of them could enjoy it, uh, whereas if there are 10 billion people, uh, then there's many more people who can get the benefit from this good. Uh, so it really is quite different. Uh, in some ways, you might think uh, hammer is a little bit like that in that the very design, the first idea of coming up with the, the very concept of a hammer uh, was like that. Uh, it was an information good, but hammers in general are, are not. So, uh, many goods are uh, in the information economy and there's an increasing uh, focus on informational goods in society. So some examples include novels, poems, films, songs, recipes, uh, lots of forms of art. Uh, paintings are perhaps a, an exception, but, uh, but most forms of art uh, come in here, I think. Uh, also science, uh, all inventions, all designs, uh, and that could be a design, say, for a house or architectural building, could be many different kinds of design. Also, all of software uh, is an informational good, it's probably the most obvious example. And uh, all academic research is informational goods as well. Uh, so it actually is a very large amount of what we do. You see occasional estimates up to, I think, uh, about half of the economy being uh, information economy in rich countries. Uh, I don't know uh, how reliable those estimates are. Uh, but it is a very big thing. And it's something which scales with the number of people. We get more benefit from it the more people there are. Uh, so for example, uh, if we doubled the size of the population, uh, other things being equal, let's ignore uh, limits for the moment. If you double the size of the population, you could get the same amount of uh, these informational goods uh, with much more free time. Uh, so you could have people spending half their time, say, producing uh, these goods and half the time off, and we still end up with the same number of goods. It won't quite be as simple as a linear relationship like that uh, because it will turn out in some cases uh, maybe you, uh, you need to spend a whole life devoted to uh, your discipline in order to really produce the things. But maybe then every second person could just have a life of leisure uh, uh, and half the people do the work and everyone gets the same amount of benefits. Uh, so it's, it's quite interesting to think about this. Uh, Alternatively, you could cut it up the other way and get much more of these goods and say, let's not uh, cash out this benefit in terms of leisure, but let's take it in terms of having more of these informational goods, more music, more culture of various sorts, um, more research, more history, uh, software of different types. So this is something where we get serious benefits with extra population. So if we're thinking about limiting population, 
uh, then that's something where we're saying we're going to get less of these things than we would otherwise have. Uh, so you'd want to think seriously about that. Uh, this is an example of how population can be really beneficial to, uh, to, to everyone. Another example, uh, another economic example, uh, is complex goods. Uh, so in this case, we can contrast hammers to computers. So hammers are made from iron, uh, or maybe steel, which is a bit more complicated. Uh, computers are made from a long list of exotic elements and also many components which are manufactured by other manufacturers and then are bought by the computer manufacturer and pieced together. Uh, hammers uh, often made in a factory but could just be made in a smithy. Uh, you could make hammers in medieval times, uh, whereas oh, ancient times, uh, whereas computers uh, need to be made in very complex factories and are much more difficult to put together as well. Hammers uh, could be made by a small population if uh, you're on, well, maybe a moderately large uh, desert island, you, a desert island might not be enough to actually allow you to produce hammers. You'd have to get the ore from somewhere. Uh, you might have had to have developed the technology of uh, smelting iron because it has a very high uh, melting point and uh, you need particular furnaces and so on. Uh, but England on its own could produce hammers. Uh, uh, whereas it's not clear that that's true with computers. Uh, they require a huge population to make. Uh, one part of the, the question about, say, whether England could produce computers uh, is to do with a lot of the exotic materials which are involved in, in modern computers, uh, lots of rare earths. Uh, but putting that aside, because that's not to do with population, there's also just this question about how many people do you need uh, in an economy before you can have the level of specialization needed to create some of these parts of computers. It's, uh, I, I don't know uh, studies on this, but you can see that the more complex a good is, uh, the more people you need uh, to be uh, in the society in order to, to deal with this. If you think about having extra uh, engineers and scientists in society in order to do some of these roles, you then also need more food uh, for these people. So you also need more agricultural people to be farming the land. Uh, you also need more doctors and teachers to support uh, both the extra engineers and also to support all of the extra agricultural people you need. And then you need more food in order to support the, uh, the engineers, and the, the doctors and the teachers and so on. Uh, and the economy needs to actually be quite large in order to really support uh, very complex specialization like this. So another advantage of having large populations is that they can support very complex goods which we enjoy uh, today. If you think about this, uh, you can see that we get a lot of benefit from complex technologies like these. And that if we had a smaller population, it might just be impossible uh, to get goods like this. Uh, so suppose the world's population was limited to 100 million people. I'm not sure if that would be large enough to get computers uh, ever. Uh, but at any event, uh, it would have taken many more centuries to develop it. Would have taken, uh, if you had a uh, much smaller population, it would have taken much longer to do the research because there would have been fewer people doing research. Uh, the academic community would be much smaller, and also uh, it would have there would have been far fewer engineers, uh, so they would have had to spend more years getting the same amount of work done. Uh, so, it's uh, this is something where we only get to benefit from computers now. So those of us in this room. Uh, get to benefit from them because, because we had a large population, uh, this has meant that computers have been able to be developed uh, by the 21st century. If we'd had a much smaller population, maybe some other people could first get the benefits of computers in the distant future, uh, but we wouldn't be able to get these benefits. Uh, so this is something where, uh, where you can see with complex goods, having more people can be very valuable. I'm not sure how many people you actually need in order to get computers. So maybe this would never have come up because it's a, it's a small enough number of people. Maybe it's uh, less than a billion. Uh, but we could also wonder about what kinds of complex goods there are in the future, uh, like 
analogous to computers, uh, where we actually need a large population in order to be able to support these goods. Uh, so that's something that we basically we're never going to know, uh, but we can speculate. And it's something where we've got to be careful about these, uh, uh, these hidden costs to reducing a population or hidden benefits to increasing the population. So it's another class of benefit. So now I want to think a little bit uh, differently and to get into some moral philosophy, which is my uh, specialty. Uh, so I've previously been looking at benefits where if you have more people, it produces a whole lot of benefits potentially for the existing people. Uh, the extra people could produce music and culture and, and um, uh, invention, software and so on, that the existing people can use and also that they can use. Uh, but there can be benefits uh, uh, to those who already exist. But what about thinking about the benefits for the new people uh, for coming into existence? So one thing that a lot of people don't think about when they think about whether we have too many people or whether overpopulation is a problem is uh, this issue about your population too. Uh, so if we had uh, a much smaller population uh, now, uh, many of us wouldn't exist. Uh, is that, is th would that be a good thing? Uh, uh, so if you think for yourselves, uh, is it good that you exist? Uh, ignoring your effects on others, um, just is your, your existence on its own a good thing? Uh, I think that for most people, it is. Uh, but this is obviously a philosophical question, and it's somewhat difficult to grapple with. There's a famous philosophical problem lurking, uh, which is called the non-identity problem, or, uh, or variant thereof, where it's hard to think about uh, how to compare the world where you exist to a world where you don't exist, uh, because it wouldn't be the case that you'd be harmed by not existing, uh, because if you didn't exist, there would be no one there to, to be harmed. Uh, so it's something where, if you think about a harm, the idea is that there's two situations, and one of them is chosen over the other, and in that situation which is chosen, the person has less than they would have otherwise have, or they're, they're somehow worse off than they otherwise would have been. Uh, but that involves the person being present in both situations, uh, whereas in this case, you're only present in the, the case where you're, you're born, and you're not present otherwise. So it's a bit more philosophically difficult to think about, uh, but I think that for a lot of people, it's quite plausible that actually uh, it's, it's good that we exist. Uh, to take this on a larger scale, uh, consider the following. Uh, often uh, when talking about population, people somewhat blithely say, uh, we need to limit population uh, to uh, 8 billion people or 6 billion people. Maybe it needs to reduce from what it currently is. Uh, and these billions get thrown around somewhat blithely, I think. Uh, so if you consider the following, uh, the current British population is uh, 0.06 billion people, so 60 million people in the UK. Uh, the entire population who have ever lived in Britain from prehistoric times onwards is less than a billion people. So if we're thinking about a billion people, uh, and we're, we're just talking about a population limit, and we imagine just saying, oh no, let, let's, let's have eight instead of nine, uh, then we're talking about more people than have ever existed in Britain. Uh, and, you know, was there something good about uh, all of these, uh, the lives of all of these people who've existed uh, here? Uh, so not just uh, thinking about uh, their external effects on the rest of the world, but just thinking about all of these lives, uh, all of their hopes and dreams and things that they strived for, uh, and all of the culture and uh, uh, other uh, forms of information that these people developed, uh, you know, was there something good about it <laughs> uh, in some absolute form? Uh, so I think that there is, and I could have used uh, basically any other place. I just used Britain because we're, we're standing here. Uh, but this is something that 
often people are, are quite happy to just give up if they're thinking about these future things. I don't think they really take the opportunity costs seriously about, about what they could have had uh, if you had all of these extra people, the benefits intrinsically to those people themselves. So when philosophers talk about this, uh, there's uh, various schools of thought. Uh, and this was first really addressed by philosophers uh, with Henry Sidgwick uh, with his book The Methods of Ethics in 1874 uh, that didn't get talked about all that much uh, un uh, until 1984 when Derek Parfit here at Oxford uh, published Reasons and Persons, uh, which was a very influential book in moral philosophy, uh, uh, possibly the most influential book ever in moral philosophy, although Derek thinks that uh, Sidgwick's The Methods of Ethics is the most influential book ever in moral philosophy. Uh, and Derek really expanded this debate and opened up another, a lot of other possibilities. But I'll take you through the, this basic idea that, that Sidgwick had, and uh, I'll show you uh, some of the reasoning about this. So Sidgwick uh, considered uh, the following question. Uh, a lot of people had been thinking about how to look at the benefits, how, how good is it to have uh, uh, different outcomes? And they'd been thinking of it in terms of the sum of all of the well-beings of the people uh, in the country or area affected by this, this change. Uh, and Sidgwick noticed that there was a distinction between the average and the total, and that this didn't matter if the population stayed the same size, but if the population changed, uh, then the average and the total were very different approaches to it. So the average approach is to look at the average well-being, say, in the world, uh, and the total approach is to sum up everyone's well-being in the world. And you can see that if you, uh, if you make some changes uh, to make some people better off and some people worse off, uh, if you don't change the number of people, these give you the same result as to which, which outcomes are better than which other outcomes. But if you change the number of people, they give you very different results. So I'll take you through that. So on the average view, uh, it's good to add a life if it's got greater than average well-being, uh, ignoring the, the person's effects on everyone else, but just thinking about them intrinsically. It's good to add them if they've got better than average well-being. In the total view, uh, it's good to add a life if it's got positive well-being. So it could actually be quite badly off, uh, so long as it was uh, a life that was worth living, and it, the person was, uh, uh, had some kind of positive value in their life uh, that wasn't outweighed by negative value in their life. Uh, the average view is therefore more likely, in general, to resist increasing the population, although there might be some cases where by increasing the population you increase the average. Uh, but the total view is, is more uh, in favour of uh, increasing uh, population in more circumstances. Uh, so this ends up having quite a difference. Uh, Sidgwick was uh, in favour of the average view, uh, but it's not very popular nowadays. So here's an example, and I'll just walk you through this example. Uh, this is the kind of abstract example that moral philosophers like, uh, but it's a pretty simple idea, and I can explain it pretty simply, I think. So here we have a diagram. Uh, this is supposed to represent a certain number of people. Let's say each width across here represents a billion people, and so there's four billion people in the world. And this thing up here represents how well off the people are. Uh, so how good their lives are. And it's 10 units high. And let's say 10 units high is kind of like the standard of life uh, on average in the UK at the moment. Uh, now suppose we're considering either this world or some other world which had uh, more people. Uh, so there's the same uh, 4 billion people, but there's also an extra billion people. And the well-beings of these people uh, are now 11 units high. Uh, so it's improved everyone's well-being and it's added more people. Uh, so in this case, the average view and the total view both agree that this is a good thing to do. Uh, and similarly, if we have this example here, uh, the, we've lost three units from each person's life. So now we have uh, 35 units in total instead of 40. 
the average has gone down and the total's gone down. And so that's unequivocally a bad thing. Okay. But of course, what about cases like this where uh, the average goes down and the total goes up? Uh, so what should we think about cases like that? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I mean, we can uh, talk about that in the discussion. Uh, it's, it's quite unclear really what to think about this and people have very different views on it. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that this is a bad thing and also quite a few people in moral philosophy who think it's a good thing. Uh, but what I want to show to you is a more subtle example here. This is another example where the average goes, uh, goes down and the total goes up. But I think that there's actually a pretty strong argument that this one is a good thing. Uh, so I'll take you through that. Uh, here we've got the same uh, 4 billion people with quality of life of 10. And in this outcome here, what's happened is that all of the existing people's lives have gotten better uh, and some new people have come into existence with lives uh, which are nowhere near as good but which are still positive. So uh, these people think that uh, there's overall net value in their lives. Uh, you know, the, the pleasures outweigh the pains. Uh, but they don't outweigh them as much as is typical in the UK. Uh, so this is a situation where, again, the average has gone down and the total's gone up. Uh, and it's, uh, what's interesting about it, though, is that it's better for some people. So for these uh, 4 billion people, this, this option here is better than this option here. Uh, their life got better. Okay? It's worse for no one. Uh, there's no one who's in, in both worlds and is worse off in the second world. Uh, and also, uh, it's bad for no one. There's no one who actually has some negative uh, life in this, uh, this second world. So it's a world which is, uh, is better for some, worse for none, and bad for none. Uh, so it's somewhat hard to complain about this type of thing. Uh, but it, it's interesting. Some philosophers do complain about it. Uh, many don't. Uh, if you're an economist, you'll know about the uh, Pareto uh, principle. And uh, this, uh, this satisfies it. But there's, it's an interesting kind of case to consider. Uh, in this. Uh, so it could be that in some cases with, uh, uh, when considering various population policies, uh, there could be outcomes which are like this, where the average does go down and the total goes up. Uh, a lot of people just have some intuitive assumption that when they're talking about what it would mean to be uh, an improvement, that they're just talking about the average. They'll just decide that at the outset when setting up their equations, and then they'll solve a whole lot of equations and say that you know, the world needs fewer people, uh, because they're saying that if we add more people at the moment, the average will go down. Uh, but that's not clear that that's actually what's important. Maybe what's important is the, the total uh, rather than the average. Or maybe what's important is something more complex uh, to do with both of them, which also maybe pays attention to which people exist in both cases and how well off they are. Uh, so philosophers have talked a lot about this. I won't uh, bore you with a whole lot more of these examples, but uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, comment on it. Uh, I should say that sometimes people object to the total view uh, that you sum everyone up. Uh, they object to it because it implies an obligation to have more children, uh, which they think uh, goes against, uh, maybe goes against their kind of modern liberal sensibilities or uh, goes against some, some more deeply held uh, intuitions. Uh, however, it's actually a really bad reason to object to the total view. You can object to it. I mean, it might just be an incorrect view, uh, but it's not a good reason to object uh, because almost all other views have the same property. Uh, if you have a view, even a view that says only the present people matter, Future people are totally irrelevant when working out uh, the benefits. Uh, even that view sometimes says you have an obligation to have more children. It would say you have an obligation to have children if they will make the existing lives better, for example. Uh, so uh, it depends upon empirical facts in that case as to whether they have an obligation to have more children. Pretty much the only way you can avoid obligations to have more children when setting these things up is if you say uh, that you just make it a, a rule by fiat that uh, reproductive liberty trumps all of the other things. 
uh, or something like that. It's possible to avoid, but it's actually quite hard. Now, there's a lot more that can be said here. Uh, in particular, I've talked about average versus total, but there's also a whole lot of these other views to do with actual people and necessary people and so on. And one of the only things that's actually agreed at the moment by philosophers, and they've only been talking about this stuff for about 30 years, uh, which is actually not that long in terms of number of articles published and so forth. Uh, pretty much the only thing that anyone agrees on now is that the average view is wrong. Uh, there are examples involving uh, people with negative welfare, which uh, pretty conclusively show this. And currently, I, I think no professional philosophers support this view. Probably the total view is the most popular, but has maybe, you know, 20% of the support, and the 80% of support is kind of spread between millions of other theories that people uh, keep inventing. Uh, so that's just to give you some background, though, as to what on earth is it we're actually trying to increase, and how do we take into account the, the benefits for new people? So uh, now I want to talk a bit about the, uh, the costs of population. So I've talked about different aspects of the benefits uh, to do with the information economy, to do with complex goods, and to do with the benefits uh, for the new people. Uh, but there's also costs of population. So one standard form of a cost is often phrased as a limit on population growth. So there are many of these different potential limits to population growth. Uh, the most common one to talk about is food production. Uh, but another one is fresh water, also talked about a lot. Uh, energy consumption is talked about. That particularly often involves certain types of energy, such as oil running out, which is a, a type of energy which is very convenient for transporting around in automobiles and so on. Uh, but also, uh, there are other aspects of running out of energy. Uh, there is questions about how much CO2 uh, the atmosphere can hold uh, without reaching certain detrimental levels. Uh, so that's another form of limitation on population growth. Uh, so, and a, a final one is uh, looking at uh, you know, a whole lot of other natural resources which might be running out. Uh, so they, and there are probably more. There may well be some that I haven't listed here which get talked about later in the season. So also, uh, uh, in practice, uh, when I say these are limits, they tend not to have sharp cutoffs. You could imagine something that did have a sharp cutoff. Maybe there was some resource like uh, oxygen that we all needed, and it turned out that we all need the certain fixed amount, and we can't get by with any less, and you can't create it, and therefore it produces some kind of a fixed limit. Uh, maybe that limit would be of the form of number of humans who can exist at one time, or maybe the limit would be of the form of number of humans who could ever exist. It could be a, a kind of cumulative limit. Uh, but in practice, these things typically are, are, are not uh, sharp cutoffs. But instead, when you get very close to running out of the easily available resource, you then have to go for more costly resources. Um, and in, you get this in, in various cases. Uh, so we're using a lot of uh, uh, easily available dirty energy at the moment. Uh, and to move to clean energy is more costly. Uh, so if we run into limits on how much dirty energy we can produce, uh, based on the environment's ability to soak it up, uh, the, you know, the carbon uh, sinks in the environment and so forth, uh, then we have to spend more money in order to get uh, uh, the cleaner energy. So often these limits are not, uh, are not uh, sharp, but really they just signal that the, the costs are going to go up at a certain point. And maybe some of them don't even have a point where the costs start going up. The costs just kind of increase linearly, and there reaches a certain point at which we're just not prepared to take it anymore or something like that. Uh, but they're often phrased as limits. Uh, and when it comes to these limits, uh, one thing to be aware of is that we should mainly focus on the most limiting factor. Uh, so suppose there's one factor, X, which limits us to 10 billion people. Let's say food limits us to 10 billion people, and water limits us to 15 billion people. Uh, if, we, if we knew those figures, uh, then 
uh, food is much more uh, deserving of attention as a limit. Because if there's a limit that you're never going to reach anyway because something else limits you, it's less relevant. Uh, so a lot of what you should be doing when, when hearing about the limits in different areas is to try to work out which looks like it's going to be the most limiting. Uh, it's not quite as simple as just picking the minimum because there's often dependencies between them and, and things like this. Uh, but it's certainly something to, to be aware of. So I also want to talk a bit about what I'm calling soft limits and hard limits. Uh, so one question that you might have is, are we near a limit on food production? You're going to hear about that in a later week. Uh, some people say yes, and they say that we can only just feed the current population, uh, and we have little arable land left to expand into. Uh, so they've looked at the limit on, on land, and they've said that uh, uh, we're going to hit a limit soon, and people are going to die uh, due to not having enough food. Some people in response to this would say, uh, no, uh, that's not true. Uh, meat production uses much more land per eater uh, than vegetables. At least most meats do. Uh, chicken is debatable. Uh, so they say that uh, we could support uh, uh, something like twice as many people if we all ate less meat. Uh, and there's, there's pretty good evidence on this. Uh, the, in particular, what happens is that uh, in order to have, say, uh, cows, uh, if you have uh, grain-fed beef, uh, then there's a whole lot of uh, hectares needed to be uh, sown with seed in order to produce the grain, which then goes to the cows, which eat it, and then inefficiently turn it into, uh, into protein. And then we eat the cows. And we could have just actually fed more people by just eating the grain directly instead of putting it through that, that extra middleman in the process. Uh, so it's true that, uh, that it's much more wasteful uh, of, uh, of land area and arable land uh, to eat meat. And so I think that both of these, uh, these positions have something to say for them. Uh, so I think they're both right in different senses, though. Uh, so the first one is saying that with business as usual, global food shortages may occur soon, which is true. Uh, and the second one is saying with sensible management, they won't. Uh, so it's pointing out that it's not a fundamental limit that we're just about to hit on, uh, on food production. Instead, it's a limit just because people can't be bothered to eat less meat. Uh, so, you know, it's not some fundamental thing about, you know, the Earth's carrying capacity in some, in some deep way. Uh, you know, we could potentially, in this case, you know, have another 7 billion people or something like that, um, if only we were prepared to eat meat every second day or something like this. Uh, and some of these, these costs are actually relatively small. If you look at kind of how much that impacts someone's quality of life, it's, you know, it's likely to be uh, you know, a couple of percent or something. Uh, it's hard to really imagine it being much more than that to just reduce your meat consumption a bit. Uh, so, and yet, at the same, the same point, um, I can't see that that's going to happen if we just continue down the road we're continuing down. Probably because the people who are eating meat have so much more money than the people who aren't, uh, they can just keep buying the meat uh, they're prepared to pay more for the grain in order to go to the cows in order to be eaten uh, than the other people can pay in order to get the grain to survive. Uh, and so people will die. Uh, so there's a big power differential which is causing that problem. So that's a, a really important type of issue. And it's just worth seeing that there's just different relevant senses there uh, as to what's a hard limit and what's a soft limit. What are the things where we just need to get our act together as a society to actually uh, to reform how we live or something uh, in order to uh, avoid people dying due to this resource shortage. Uh, and, yeah, you can start thinking about ways to change behaviour. I mean, in this case, uh, it does happen. So about 10% of the population of the UK are vegetarian uh, for a number of reasons, but certainly including, as a prominent reason, animal welfare and also uh, uh, global issues to do with the environment and sustainability of the population and food shortages. 
Uh, so that's something which could potentially uh, continue to increase. Uh, I'm not sure what the trends on it are, but maybe we'll find out in the future that there's a lot more vegetarians and this, this problem might go away, partly because the people are responding to the problem and changing their behaviour voluntarily. Alternatively, uh, maybe we could lobby the government to introduce a tax on meat uh, or a tax on food based on the number of hectares of arable land that are used, uh, which would perhaps be a more fair way to do it. Uh, and you could introduce things like this in order to actually uh, try to produce the behaviour which would lead, you know, which would avoid mass starvation of the poor, uh, which is something we generally, at least we, we pretend that we, we care about. And so, uh, uh, but I can't, I can, it's hard to imagine people lobbying the government for meat taxes. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure what would happen with that. But it's just worth thinking about that this is a behavioural issue rather than a hard constraint. Another uh, final thing that I want to say here on, uh, on the costs is about distribution of population. So uh, the uh, conditions in different countries vary greatly. Uh, so far I've been talking about population as this monolithic issue, uh, as if uh, there's no heterogeneity between countries uh, or uh, between where the people are going to come. In actual fact, conditions in different countries vary greatly, different amounts of uh, wealth and power between countries and different living conditions. Uh, also, the, the existing population, I don't mean old as in old age, I mean the current existing population is not spread evenly around the globe. Uh, and the new population, uh, who would arise? Uh, so the question about where the birth rates are uh, is not spread evenly either. So there are a whole lot of extra distributional issues that come in uh, and complicate matters enormously. Uh, I'm not going to talk about them much, uh, but they will be talked about later. Uh, I believe uh, Tony Atkinson is going to be talking about that uh, later on. Uh, but these, these factors combine to create various complications, such as uh, political upheavals, uh, mass migration uh, could occur, uh, there could be regional shortages, so it could be the case that there's enough food in some places and not enough food in other places, which complicates things, particularly as I, the example I mentioned, where there's more than enough food, it's just that the rich people are consuming more of it than they need to. Uh, questions like this. Uh, and that relates to uneven power uh, between these different regions. Uh, also, uh, we need to be very careful about our intuitions to do with the distribution of the population, as a lot of people have uh, very different intuitions about it when they're thinking about in some distant uh, country, uh, in develop a developing country, compared to their own country. Uh, they might think that uh, you know, people die uh, over there, and they might think we, don't, we shouldn't save these people because there's just going to be so many more people in the future. This is the type of thing that was said a lot in the 1960s, uh, that this kind of ethics of triage uh, and that it's better if, we, if these people die. But we don't have any approach like that in the UK. We don't say, oh, hang on, it's bad to save people's lives, so the NHS should be cut to zero. Uh, uh, or, uh, and we should just totally get rid of it and not have any healthcare system and just let people die because apparently it's good if people die. There's this strange kind of disconnect in our intuitions about a lot of these things. Uh, some of this, dis this disconnect could be based on actual issues about uh, which countries can support more people and which countries can't. So maybe people could say that the UK is rich enough to be able to support more people, so it's okay to, uh, to have children here and to, uh, uh, to save lives here, whereas it's not as good in other countries. But then again, we could achieve that just by having fewer people here and having more migration uh, in order to uh, incorporate other people into the UK where they could benefit from our resources. Uh, so it's actually, there's a lot of messy issues in there to do with this and it's worth just being aware of that, that the distribution of population where this is going to happen is very relevant and there, we have a lot of intuitions about these things but some of our intuitions probably don't stand up to scrutiny and we're probably just being biased towards ourselves in some of these cases. It's, so it's, it's just wanted to open that up. Uh, finally I want to look at uh, how things might change and uh, 
firstly, uh, there's the question of technological change. Uh, so uh, Ehrlich, uh, in The Population Bomb, uh, he opened it with the, uh, the sentence, in the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash program embarked upon now. Uh, and he was wrong about that. There wasn't that kind of mass starvation. Uh, and that, that, was, that was pretty bad because it was, uh, it was published just before that. Uh, so that was a very short-term prediction and was, was very wrong. And it was wrong because of technological changes uh, primarily. Uh, there was something called the Green Revolution, uh, which is really a combination of different effects. Uh, there were high-yield cereals was one of the large effects. Uh, also more irrigation, uh, better use of synthetic fertilizers, and also use of pesticides. Uh, which combined to increase the world's food production massively. Uh, so on the previous trends, he would have been right, uh, but he was just wrong that the trends would continue. Uh, sometimes we get innovative change and we can break out of these trends. Uh, so uh, in fact, uh, overall, the wheat yields uh, per hectare uh, increased by a factor of three in developing countries uh, over the last 40 years. Uh, so that's a, a massive increase, and a lot of people probably would have just put that outside their confidence interval. They would have said, well, maybe it will increase by 20% or something, but it's not going to triple. Uh, but sometimes you really do get radical benefits like this through technology. Uh, so Norman Borlaug, who uh, uh, was behind the breeding program for wheat, uh, which is actually just really simple. Uh, the basic idea was, it doesn't use genetic engineering, uh, the, the basic idea was that he found that you can get much more wheat per hectare if you increase the number of, uh, uh, of grains of wheat per stalk on, on the plant. Um, however, if you increase it too high, just by breeding plants together in the old-fashioned way, if you increase it too much, then the wheat falls over, uh, and then it doesn't uh, survive, and it rots, I think. Uh, so instead, he looked at breeding dwarf wheat, which has a, a thicker and shorter stem on it, and that could support more grains. And so it just turned out to be able to uh, feed a lot more people. So there's some, actually some pretty simple ideas behind some of this, which made a big difference. Uh, and it's estimated to have saved more than 200 lives uh, with uh, his, uh, his breeding programs uh, for, for different uh, wheats. So also, uh, technological change uh, could expand the limits. Uh, this, is, this is where I'm coming to here. In, in the future, we could have more technological change of this, perhaps genetic engineering of crops or new, new farming methods, uh, such as aquaculture, uh, might ease the food limits. Uh, also, uh, if we could somehow uh, produce some kind of cheap, clean energy, uh, which is much easier said than done, uh, so it's a big if, but it might be possible, uh, mm -hmm. then we would uh, relax many of these limits at once. Uh, for example, if you have a very cheap, clean energy, uh, you can solve the fresh water problem by constructing desalinization plants. Uh, at the moment, one of the big problems with desalinization plants is they use a lot of energy, a lot of which is dirty, and so it creates a lot of CO2 worsening global warming. But if you could actually power them with some kind of renewable energy like solar or tide power or something like this, uh, then you could potentially just get uh, fresh water uh, for just for money and for potentially a relatively small amount of money rather than for a whole lot of extra uh, bad environmental effects. So that would make a big difference. Uh, in the long run, there are kind of much more radical things. Often you know, people say, well, uh, will we eventually colonize other planets in our solar system or colonize other planets in the galaxy? Uh, there are a lot of other planets. Uh, uh, billions of planets. Uh, so this is something where you could imagine the population might uh, balloon out uh, enormously uh, in the future. Uh, but that's not really related to a lot of the issues we're going to be looking at now. But it's interesting to, to consider in terms of this. Uh, it might be, if you take this kind of total view of population, uh, that having a uh, population billions of times larger than the current population uh, without running into the limits of a single planet 
uh, could be something which would, uh, uh, would be a massive uh, moral imperative to produce it. Uh, if you think all of these people have you know, intrinsically valuable lives just like we do, but there'll be many more of them, much more value. Um, alternatively, you might think that's a bit of a reductio of that position if you, if you find that unintuitive, but it's uh, interesting to think about as a, as a really long run issue. Uh, technological change could increase the benefits. Uh, so uh, it might be that moving more things into the information economy uh, helps. So for example, before we had computers, uh, we didn't have these benefits of software being in the information economy. Now we do. Uh, so that's something which means that having more people uh, is a better thing than it was in the past. Uh, so it changes the amount of benefits you get rather than just changing the, the, the limits uh, or developing new complex goods. Uh, finally, I want to just talk a little bit about uh, social change. Uh, so if we could cooperate better, uh, we could greatly expand many of these limits. Uh, we're often pretty bad at this uh, as, as a society, uh, but I gave the example of eating less meat uh, can lead to doubling the amount of people who can uh, be sustained by the arable land on the earth. Another example is using less water. I know uh, I'm an Australian and uh, I remember there's, there's, we've had some serious drought there recently. And the government uh, issued a population, a couple of different population advisories, uh, and also questions about migration and how many people Australia could support and so on. And it, the, their view was that we really couldn't support many more people. Water was this critical issue for Australia. Um, so, you know, lock the gates and don't allow uh, any more migrants in. Uh, however, it was never discussed, you know, the idea that maybe if push came to shove, we could have a shower every second day uh, or something like that, or, you know, shorter showers was discussed, but you know, some of these ideas like not having a shower every day or something uh, were, were commonplace uh, in the past, uh, but now seem really radical. You know, that's just totally off the table. Of course, we're not going to consider that. We'll consider letting billions of people die from starvation, but we're not going to consider issues about showering. Uh, so yeah, it, it is, it's, I think it's, it's pretty weird uh, that you get this kind of debate which is so skewed towards cu common, you know, current cultural practices uh, and doesn't really consider any deviation from them. Uh, so uh, similarly, it doesn't cost that much to, lose, to use less CO2. Uh, using uh, uh, renewable energy costs more than using non-renewable energy, but it's not actually that much more. Uh, and uh, uh, we could do this without radical losses to our, uh, our quality of life. Uh, and using less energy overall. Uh, you can look at this and say, how bad would it be if we had, you know, if we had less money because of this? And uh, how much energy uh, you know, how far back in time do you have to look at uh, before you find a time where uh, it would be like going back to, to, you know, would it be like going back to the Stone Age or something? But uh, it looks like it'd be more like going back to the 1970s or something like that, you know, living like, uh, like your parents lived or something. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound that radical, some of these possibilities that for using less of these things. It's just hard to, as a coordination problem to convince everyone to do it. Uh, that's really where this is coming from. So social change is a really big, big issue. And uh, so to sum up, uh, the questions about population targets are very serious questions uh, with billions of lives at stake. Uh, and I think that they, they require sober discussion. And in particular, I think that some of these ideas like the benefits of population have really got missed in a lot of the conversation. Not all of it, but in, in a lot of it. Uh, the benefits have to be weighed against the, the costs and it's possible to have underpopulation with an imperative to increase our population just as it's possible to have the other way around. It's also possible to have no imperative either way. Uh, information goods and complex goods are two key reasons to have a high population. The intrinsic value of new people is a third reason. Uh, it's 
controversial, but it's controversial to totally neglect it as well. And uh, we have to distinguish between these hard and soft limits. A lot of the time in the conversation, people are talking past each other, where one person says, there's a serious limit caused by food, and the other person says, it's, no, there's not a real limit, it's just a limit of not working together. And it is a real limit, but it's a real limit of not working together and cooperating. Uh, so it's, you've got to tease that out. Uh, and uh, uh, finally, uh, there could be great benefits uh, in overcoming the limits through technological or social change. Uh, thank you.